Um, I wanted to welcome our new interim pastor, Reverend Rick Downs. Everybody can wave and say, hey, I'm sure there's going to be more formal intros and stuff that'll that'll come about, but welcome. So glad to have you. Your wife, T, is on the retreat with the ladies right now, so <clears throat> look forward to meeting her as well. Um, let me just jump right in and open us in prayer so that we can start moving through. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your grace, for the way that you love us, for the way that you provide for us. Thank you for the plans that you have for us, the design that you had in mind when you perfectly created this world. Um, thank you for the promise of redeeming us um, so that you would remove sin's impact as far as the curse is found. Thank you for this um, course so far on vocation and the reminder of Christ as our Lord, whom we submit every area of our lives to. And today as we look at the family and the various vocations and callings, roles and stations within that institution that you set up, uh, we pray that you would uh, humble our hearts to receive your word, to um, have a desire to conform our lives into uh, the image you set forth for us in scripture. But we are going to need your help, Father. Please send your Holy Spirit to give us um, more of your grace and lead us in, in a way that is pleasing unto you. We count no one our teacher but you, Christ, so please help us now. It's in your name we pray, amen. <clears throat> All right. So we are half, we're at the halfway point in this 10-week course. This is lesson five. Remember the first three, uh, for those who are new, we started out with a sort of a philosophical look at calling, what does vocation mean, um, we looked at the context of calling, that it's God who calls and we're the called. We looked at the concept of calling, that God loves his people through his people and he uses means to accomplish his ends in this world. Um, we looked at the, the content of calling, the scope of the summons, um, where all is, Christ is Lord over every sphere. Kuiper said, not one square inch over which Christ does not cry, mine. And then last week we started looking at um, Calling lived out, calling applied. And last week we were looking at calling in the context of our work, in the sphere of our work, both in our occupation, the job where we, we do labor so we can earn an income, uh, but also in just the concept of work that spans out over every area of life. <clears throat> Today we're going to look at calling lived out in our families. Um, we're hoping to explore or examine the basic structure and function of the family as prescribed and modeled in the special revelation of God's word and in the general revelation of his created world. And the intent is that we all might better understand God's intention for the family, how his standards apply to our individual circumstances, the degree to which we're obedient to or maybe not with his commands, uh, and the hope of Christ's redemption of our families through God's grace of repentance and forgiveness and the fruit of his Holy Spirit. So I have a warning uh, for this class, um, sort of just a preliminary disclaimer. This is a hard lesson. Probably always, I don't know, since the fall, but I know it's true now because I live now. And this is hard for me in preparing. Um, I do not conform to the standards of Scripture in every area of life perfectly. And it's a constant process of growing in our understanding and striving by the grace of God, all of grace, um, to live a more sanctified life, holy and set unto Him, um, set apart unto Him. There is... Not a single point uh, in this whole lesson with which someone will not likely take offense. Um, God's word is convicting to each of us. It's sharper than any double-edged sword, pierces all the way down to the marrow. And we have all fallen short of his holy standard. Uh, we all battle with selfish sin within our own hearts. We all are impacted by the corrupt culture that's around us. And we all, in some ways, desire to please man rather than God and to seek our own idols rather than to submit to God through daily taking up our cross and following after him. So um, we need God's grace. <clears throat> and it's tempting when 
faced with um, some of the hard teachings of the word, um, to look around at others who maybe look like they're doing a little bit better job and to feel uh, envy or anger towards them or to feel beaten up and um, overwhelmed and the impossibility of God's perfect standards. We all need God's grace. Um, when you think about, I was thinking about recently uh, Noah and how God used him to, to save humanity. Noah was not wiser than everybody else in the whole world at that point. Um, it wasn't that he <clears throat> somehow understood in his own strength that there was a, a flood that was coming, and so he just decided on his own to build this boat um, and to do all that he did in the preparations. No, Noah heard God's word, he believed God's word, and he obeyed God's word. And he did so contrary to the understanding of the world around him. It took him 100 years to build that boat, and people mocked him, accused him, laughed at him, uh, ostracized him in every way, shape, and form in that time. And as he was building, faithfully acting out and living out what God had called him to do, he was also explaining and teaching to those around him why he was doing what he was doing. And it wasn't in his control for them to hear and believe. It's in God's. Uh, <clears throat> and so everything that we do recognize is all of a grace, all of grace of God, we, our very lives. We need him for certainly the justification before a holy God. We also need him for sanctification as we progressively conform our lives more and more into the image of God. It's all empowered by his Holy Spirit. It's all from God. And we give him praise for everything. We have nothing good in and of ourselves. That's the base. And though you may feel otherwise uh, through this, there's no desire in my heart to discourage anyone in this room um, or to clobber anyone with this lesson. Quite the opposite. My desire is that we would be faithful to God's word and to trust in his Holy Spirit to use that word to our good and to his glory. We want to conform our lives to his will for us in Christ. And we have a promise and a hope that he will do that. The work that he began in us, this is the great thing. The work that God began in us, he will see to, through to the end. He will accomplish his work. We will not always be you know, painted by sin. One day, in this new heavens and new earth, we're going to get to experience God's intent for creation and for life free from the bonds and the um, damage and the pain and the grief of sin. <clears throat> so we have that hope. But the bitter must come before the sweet. The cross comes before the crown. And so we're going to um, take our bitter pills here as we, as we look through God's word and then lay our lives before him that he would change us into conformity of his, of his standard. So uh, another thing, we are necessarily going to have to be brief on each topic. So um, please use this as fodder for your prayers and for further study. Um, we're going to look at eight little areas. There's, there's probably three dozen within the family that you could explore. I just, I just pulled up a few, and we're just going to be able to kind of touch on them in summary. I've given you a pretty in-depth handout there, so you've got a lot of verses um, you can look at. Uh, you can kind of see where we're going, so you don't feel like you're having to write everything down. But uh, everything is, is written out here. And like I mentioned, you can get on our class site um, later this week for further study, small group discussion, all those kind of things. <clears throat> all right. um, so if you recall from our last lesson, we discussed a five-point framework for making ethical decisions about life. The framework consists of five questions to ask ourselves as we're making decisions, both uh, making decisions proactively about things that are coming down the road, uh, as well as reactively. You know, uh, during regular times of self-assessment or self-audit so that we might not be guilty of drifting along in life by the winds and waves of the world, but that we might be intentional in our following after Christ. So the five questions to cycle through in our thinking regularly are, <clears throat> by what standard, to what end, at what cost, through what means, and from what motive? By what standard, to what end, at what cost, 
through what means and from what motive. And if we can work our way through each of those five in any decision that we're trying to make, it's going to help us in conforming ourselves to the word of God, um, to making sure that we are in his will. Um, scripture does teach us in many ways. It is our only inherent, inerrant, excuse me, uh, absolute authority for faith and life. You remember the Westminster Shorter Catechism question three, what do the scriptures principally teach? Anybody? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duties God requires of him. So the scriptures tell us what we ought to think, believe, know about God, as well as what we ought to do in obedience to him and conforming our lives and our actions to him. And how do the scriptures go about doing that? Well, uh, what's contained in them for us to learn from? There's different types of teaching that you'll come across in scripture. Um, There are some places that are uh, this might be your, <clears throat> yeah, this is, oh, let me look at your, your handout does, I'm sorry, I, my, my notes don't necessarily follow it. So we learn from scripture and we learn from nature. Those are the first two gaps in your, in your handout there. We learn from scripture, God's special revelation in the word, and we learn from nature, his general revelation. We'll talk about that in a second. But we learn from God's word in uh, three different ways. We learn through explicit and unwavering commands. Explicit and unwavering commands. So the preceptive will of God. Think about the Ten Commandments or uh, the household rules in Ephesians 6 or 1 Corinthians 7. These are things that are explicitly stated, you should do this. You should not do this. These are explicit teachings and commands. Um, We also have norms and principles which give general or directional truths. So you can think about the Proverbs. They're not um, necessarily promises that will always occur, but they're, uh, they're wise formulas for life. This is generally how things are going to go. And then you have examples from which to learn. Uh, so narrative stories and models. Some are good, some are bad. It's, it's not healthy, as just a general hermeneutic, to try and... Um, take from stories, um, narratives, and and turn them into uh, normative standards because our translation of them, how we we say, just because David wore a red shirt doesn't mean that everybody has to wear a red shirt every day. Maybe he wore it for a good reason. Maybe he didn't. Maybe it's arbitrary. So we can learn from the examples and the stories and the narratives that we see in Scripture, but uh, unless God is explicit in saying that what he did for this reason is right for this, then don't try to, um, don't try to add Add to his word. So those are the things that we're going to, as as we're trying to figure out by what standard, as we're trying to conform our lives to the word, we need to recognize that um, there are some things that are explicitly commanded. We need to take those seriously. We need to take them all seriously. There are some things that are norms or principles, and there might be a situation in which you fall outside of that. And that may or may not be good or bad. That may or may not be right or wrong. That may or may not be sin. And so... um, We need to look at the whole of Scripture to understand those things. And then there are good examples from which we can learn, but recognize that some are good and some are bad. Um, So don't put a burden on yourself that God hasn't. God's also provided for us through his creation, his general revelation. And while it doesn't hold the explicit clarity of the special revelation of the Scriptures, it nonetheless teaches us about God's will and design for life, clearly. Scripture itself uh, appeals to this in a number of different ways to show us both that we can Uh, learn from creational work of God, and that we should learn from the creational work of God found in nature. So a couple of examples from Romans. Romans 1, 18 through 20, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. God reveals himself through the creation in such a way that people are without excuse for not recognizing it. It goes on in Romans 2, 14 through 15, and it says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, they don't have the scriptures, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, 
and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. God made man in his image, and he has written on our hearts <clears throat> much of the, the revealed, um, his revealed self. And so while that's not as, um, it doesn't have the same level of clarity as explicit words in print that God delivered by his grace through special revelation, it nonetheless does teach us. Um, two basic rules for life as a Christian. Number one, uh, your, your notes will say, you should never violate an explicit command. So if you live contrary to an explicit command of Scripture, you are in sin and you must repent. Period. That should be clear enough. Number two, if you veer from a non-explicit teaching, then you need to have a good reason and it needs to be backed up by Scripture. A little bit longer explanation. If you decide that it's right for your individual circumstances to veer off of some non-explicit teaching, a norm, um, you know, a, a standard, a, uh, something that's common in almost every circumstance and seems to be the way that God designed things to go, if you're going to veer off of that, um, then you need to know why you believe that your course of action to be righteous and you need to be able to explain both to yourself and others how it is that you're not contradicting the explicit teachings of Scripture before you go down that path. It shouldn't be hard, but I just want to lay that up front. So some examples. <clears throat> it is normal, meaning it is the standard mode of living baked into the design of God and creation that men and women get married and have children and thus fulfill the dominion mandate. That's just normal. That's the, the common path of life. It's baked into God's design. He made man. It wasn't good for him to be alone. He made woman to be a helper for him. He brought, called, brought them together and said, go take dominion, multiply, fill the earth. Two examples that we might see some veering off of that norm. Abram. In Genesis 15, 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited him as righteousness. So Abram was not by his own work, but by faith. He was a righteous man, favored by God. Genesis 21, 5, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. So was Abraham sinful before the Lord for the first hundred years of his life because he and Sarah hadn't yet had any children? No. God's the giver of life. God controls if and when couples have children. So uh, for a century of his life, Abram broke the norm of the function of the family, uh, but he did so through God's providence. It was outside of Abram's control. So he did not need to think of himself in sin because they were not able to have a baby. Paul, <clears throat> uh, Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. It's God's normative standard that someone be married. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 7. I wish that all were as I myself am. This is Paul speaking. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Was Paul sinful before the Lord because he was not married? So, Brian? Yes, ma'am. Isn't the converse, of, is that the right word, of that true that birth control is sinful? That is an excellent question and one that will be top of the list on a biblical ethics course that I hope to teach soon. But because I have 13 pages of notes to get through today, I will um, keep moving forward. Very good to consider. Um, so was Paul sinful before the Lord because he wasn't married? And was he defiant against God uh, in not even asking or seeking to be married? No. Paul had a special calling from God and was equipped with a special gift. So there are times in life and special circumstances or situations where uh, unique callings may lead a person or a family outside of this norm. That does happen. But we need to recognize that it is uncommon and not what we ought to aspire to unless God has intervened in our lives to providentially call us to a path that veers from the normative model. Okay. Now let's move into the vocations of the family. I'm going to read uh, just a little snippet here from uh, Gene Veith's book, God at Work, on vocation. Lutheran scholar. Uh, it's a good book. He says, um, every Christian, indeed every human being, has been called by God into a family. Our very existence came about by means of our parents who conceived us and brought us into the world. God could have populated the earth by creating each new person separately from the dust, 
But instead, he chose to bring forth and care for new life by means of the family. Uh, The family is the most basic of all vocations. So you can think here vocation in terms of a role or station. Um, We talked about how the the foundational vocation is our effectual calling unto Christ. So here he means the the most basic um, role or station in life is the family. The one in which God's creative power and his providential care are most dramatically conveyed through human beings. Anthropologists point out that the family is the basic unit of every culture. Uh, The family, with its God-delegated authorities, is likewise the basis for every other authority. Thus, the vocation of citizenship has its foundation in the family. The father's calling to provide for his children gives rise to his calling in the workplace. And even in the church, the family is lifted up as an image for the intimate relationship that God has with his people. God is our father in heaven. The church is the bride of Christ. We were born into a family, our very existence being due to a mother and father. Being a child is a vocation, according to the Reformers, and we will always be the child to our parents. And it may be that we children, in turn, will be called into marriage, another lifetime relationship, and that we will be called to be parents with children of our own. All of these are holy, divine vocations from the Lord. Okay. Um, What I want to do in this very summary overview is... Is no ways an exhaustive list, but I want to look at four roles that you'll find within the family and four general responsibilities that God has assigned to the family. Four roles and four responsibilities. Quickly, they are marriage, parenthood, childhood, and grandparenthood. I looked around the room and thought, let's talk about that too. So uh, marriage, parenthood, childhood. And grandparenthood. Note that childhood is the only one that Jesus experienced as a human being. That's kind of just an interesting thought. Um, Responsibilities. Welfare, education, economy, and community. All responsibilities assigned to the family. Welfare, education, economy, and community. All right. Some scriptures, just some background scriptures first on marriage. Genesis 2, 24. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to walk us through a number of scriptures. Uh, if we had more time, I'd, I'd love to give commentary on each. But my opinions are stupid in comparison to the word. And so I'd rather us um, be able to hear the word on these topics. Uh, we'll have some summary thoughts on each one. And, <clears throat> but you've got them there so you can go look them up more and pray through them and consider them and talk about them with your families as we go. So just in, in general on marriage, a few scriptures to think about. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Matthew nineteen four through 6. He answered, uh, have, you not, Jesus, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What God therefore has joined together, let not man separate. Uh, More than half of what God has joined together in marriage, um, man has separated in our world today. Now, they were not all believing some were unequally yoked, some were unbelievers and unbelievers. So when I say God joined them together, God created marriage as a creational ordinance. It's not something that is unique to Christianity. It's not something unique to believers. We understand it differently because God's renewed our minds and given us a heart of flesh, and we can see, and the wisdom of the world is foolish, and the wisdom of God is of the Spirit. We can, we can understand it in a different way than they can, <clears throat> but it's normative from creation that marriage would occur. And so... Um, we, in general, as a culture, are already disobedient here as we, <clears throat> as we work through the second. Um, Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Premarital fornication, I think. Um, I mean, it's north of 90% when, when polled. North of 90%. Um, Post-marital adultery. I don't know what the stats are. I don't know who would necessarily be honest about it. But it's um, rampant 
And Jesus teaches us that it's not just the act of adultery, but having that in, even in our hearts. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, don't lust for someone in your hearts. We are falling short of the standard that God has designed for us. Um, I'm going to go through some roles for husbands and roles for wives. And I'm taking this from someone else so that if you hate me for saying it, you can hate him instead. This is from Kevin Swanson's book, Family Life. It was just a good summary. It helped me not to have to pull it all together. But I agree with what he said, so feel free to lay that on me if you need to. We can talk about it. Um, He's got a few roles here for husbands. Um, The husband is responsible, these will be in your notes, for for the material well-being of the family. The husband is responsible for the material well-being of the family. 1 Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The husband is to be the resident theologian in the home and be able to answer questions of his wife, uh, uh, his wife may have concerning what they have learned in the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35 says, The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. For if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Number three, the husband is primarily responsible for bringing the children up in the nurture of the Lord. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6-7, You shall teach them diligently to your children, these words that I've commanded you, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Number four, The husband is to love his wife sacrificially, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Number five, the husband is to live with his wife in an understanding way and treat her with gentleness and respect. 1 Peter 3.7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Number six, the husband is responsible for providing the conjugal needs of his wife. 1 Corinthians 7, 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Number seven, the husband is responsible for taking dominion over God's creation, with his wife as his helpmate, appropriate for him in the task. Genesis 1, 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 2, 18 through 22. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought to them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And number eight, the husband is responsible for defending his wife, sons, and daughters from deadly force. Nehemiah 4, 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. All right. Those are the roles of the husband. The roles of the wife. Number one, the wife is the help appropriate for her husband in his dominion tasks. Genesis 2, 20b through 22, but for Adam there was not a helper 
fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman and brought her to him. Number two, the wife is the home manager or home administrator. 1 Timothy 5.14, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Proverbs 31.27, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Number three, the wife is called to be a homemaker. Titus 2, 4 through 5, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands and to the word of God, that the word of God may not be reviled. Um, the way that scripture thinks about households is different than the way that we generally experience them. Um, you remember when, when um, before Abram had even had a son, of his own. He didn't have a child. He uh, had, his, had his herds. God had sent him out to another place. He went with Lot. Uh, Lot landed in Sodom. And Chedalomer brought war against the kings of the land, this wicked king. And in the process, he um, took Lot and some others from Sodom as a slave and, and, and had them captured. And Abram heard about this, and he was going to go and take him back, defend him. And it said that from his household, Abram took 318 able-bodied men, trained and equipped to go and fight. So Abram, who didn't have a single child biologically, had a household that had within it 318 men who were able to go with him to go and fight Chattelalmer and take Lot back. Um, a household is broader than just my biological seed may be uh, expanded through adoption. Um, we don't have the same, necessarily the same setup where we have um, you know, servants or whatever. Maybe some of you do. I'm, I'm not in that echelon of whatever society. Um, but essentially anyone who's under your care in this concept would be part of a household. And, and the household economy, um, you know, it wasn't post-industrial revolution where you left the house and went and worked in some factory or something like that, and there was all this distance. The household economy was what the, Joseph was a tecton, a carpenter. Jesus, his son, was a tecton and a carpenter too. He helped, it, you, you, whether it was your trade, if you were the king, your children would follow along after you and be apprenticed and learn the trade. And it was, um, there was industry and economy that occurred within the concept of the household, and the household was broader than, you know, you, me, and our, you know, boy for me and a girl for you and all that's it, that kind of thing. Um, so understand that as we go through what, um, what, what this has to say. Uh, the wife is called to submit to her husband in the Lord. Ephesians 5, 22, 33, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The wife is called to love her husband and her children. Titus 2, 4. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. And the wife is called to seek the betterment of the household economy. We were just talking about. And I'm going to read this extended because it's, um, it's worth it. Proverbs 31, 11 through 27. Listen to all the things that the wife of noble character does for her home and for those around her. The heart of her husband trusts in her. And he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it's yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. 
She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. It's a big task. We all need grace. Um, and number seven, the wife is responsible for providing the conjugal needs of her husband. 1 Corinthians 7, 3. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. That you not be tempted in falling to sin. So that's marriage. Some people, um, in the midst of the vocation of marriage, are called to another um, respond, uh, role, and that's of parenthood. Let's see. <clears throat> We're on page 7 of 13 with 20 minutes left. So bear with me here. I'm going to try to, to get us through. Some scriptures on parenthood. Genesis 1, 27 through 28. So God created the man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. Okay. Genesis 9, 7. This was after the flood. This was God's intent in the garden when everything was golden. But then sin happened so much so that God annihilated every person in all of humanity except for these eight that he pulled out. So did his intent change? No. He told Noah in Genesis 9-7, As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. So even in the midst of the fall of sin, it's still God's intent that, uh, that we be fruitful and multiply. Proverbs 22-6, Train up a child in the way that he should go. And even when he's old, he will not depart from it. I think in the Hebrew there, it's actually uh, train up a child in the way. Because if you don't, he will, even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Meaning kids, kids don't come out, you know, little angels. Um, and so you need to train them so that they know how to go. Because if you don't, they're going to continue to not be little angels even when they're bigger and make a big mess and you know, doom themselves and others. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. There are responsibilities within these callings, and it's hard to do. The world around us, all modern psychology says, oh, that's, that's so bad, just give positive affirmation, just give them cookies and candy, don't spank them because you're going to give them some kind of complex. But God says if you don't discipline your child, if you don't train them up in the way they go, should go, teach them the standard, what it is, and to love it, and then correct them back to it when they err. If you don't do that, you hate your children. Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In the paideia of the Lord is in the Greek. It's that idea of enculturate your children. Build them into a Christian culture, into an environment where everything that they eat, sleep, breathe, and think is through the lens of a culture that's submitted to Christ. So, and that has to, you only get to control that within your home. I don't get to control the culture out there. By God's grace and through Christ's you know, dominion over time and the Great Commission, He will see to it that the culture conforms to Him. But I don't have that authority. I have it in my home. So bring them up in the paideia, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 12, 14. Here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden for, this is Paul, for I seek uh, not what is yours, but for you, I seek you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. You need to um, recognize that when God blesses you with the ability to um, you know, have a child, and that's a new, a new vocation, the waves of responsibilities start coming, and that can be overwhelming. And you know, I never understood just how selfish you know, of a jerk I was until I had kids that needed stuff when I didn't want to. I was, I was busy. I had other things to do. You know, when you're just a single person, it's hard to see. You get married. Now you got to share stuff. Yeah, I'm a little bit of a jerk. You know, um, now you get kids and they're constant. They, they're not, you know, independent. Um, and so it's just I'm a terrible person. We're very selfish. We need God to conform our hearts to to his. Malachi and thankfully, um, Malachi 4, the last book of the Old Testament, before this intertestamental period of silence, before John the Baptist comes on the scene and Jesus shows up, 
Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. It's God who enables us to be able to love our children through their incessant asking, through their unending needs. Um, So some summary thoughts. Parenthood is a great blessing and a great responsibility. We are all sinful, and that impacts how we serve or don't serve our families. In the case of parenthood, it's our children who are our neighbors, and we're called to love them. God provides that love, not us. We must rely on him to meet every need and to define how that love is to be lived out. It's not all feel-good moments. Remember, it's loving to discipline your child, even though it's uncomfortable. It's hateful to not. For those who, uh, who want to have children, and for whatever reason God has thus far not provided, please remember the goodness of the Lord. This is the case for a number in our midst. R.C. Sproul once said, God never does anything that is not perfectly good. So we have to walk by faith and not by sight. It doesn't feel that way. But God never does anything that is not perfectly good. John Newton said, everything is needful that he sends, and nothing can be needful that he withholds. So everything is needful that he sends, even the trials, even the pains, even the frustrations, even the responsibilities. But nothing can be needful that he withholds. Even if we feel like, i got to have it or I won't, I won't be able to make it. That's not true. God knows what you need, and he will give what's needed and withhold what's not. And an adage that has helped me over the years to remember is this. God will always answer your prayers by giving you exactly what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. God will always answer your prayers by giving you exactly what you would have asked for, not what you did, but what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. Okay. Um, On to childhood. We don't have much of those. I mean, we're all children. I'll go through this quick. Um, Some scriptures, Exodus 20, 12, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. It made the Decalogue, it made the top ten, pretty important. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first command with a promise, that it may go well with you, and you may live long in the land. So Paul repeats what was there. Luke 2, 40, And the child, meaning Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Later on, in verse 52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Remember, of those four roles within the family, Jesus only experienced here as a human under the sun, childhood. He didn't get married, didn't have kids, wasn't a grandparent. Um, but he was faithful in his calling to be a child. Part of what your children are called to do, and what we're even called to do as grown, a little bit more grown children, um, is to grow and become strong and be filled with wisdom. Increase in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Proverbs fifteen fifteen. A fool spurns a parent's discipline, but whoever heeds correction shows prudence. 1 Timothy 5, 1-2, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Uh, in Luther's catechism, this is from, uh, Veith pointed this out. Uh, in Luther's catechism, he writes how children need to, quote, realize that they have received their bodies and their lives from their parents and have been nourished and nurtured by their parents, when otherwise they would have perished a hundred times in their own filth. He's talking about changing divers. Um, He goes on to say that those who look at the matter in this way and think about it will, without compulsion, give all honor to their parents and esteem them as the ones through whom God has given them every good. You're alive today because they fed you. So thank them, honor them. He also recognizes that parents have their failings, and it can be difficult to honor them sometimes. I mean, some of you may have that. Some of you may have bitterness in your hearts right now as I'm even using the words parents. If I say the word father to some of you, you were abused by your father. To some of you, uh, he was a hateful man. To some of you, he never gave you anything. Maybe he left you. I don't know. Same with mothers. Maybe, maybe she manipulated you. Maybe she was whatever. <clears throat> Luther recognized that parents have their failings, and it can be difficult at times to honor them. 
He says, it must therefore be impressed on young people that they revere their parents as God's representatives. And to remember that however lowly, poor, feeble, and even eccentric they may be, they are still their mother and father given by God. They are not deprived of their honor because of their ways or their failings. Therefore, we are not to think of their persons, whatever they may be, but of the will of God who has created and ordained it so. God chose your parents. You didn't. God doesn't make mistakes. Honor what God has done by honoring your parents if he commanded you. All right. uh, Grandparenthood. Some scriptures here. Uh, One generation shall commend your works to another. Shall declare your mighty acts, Psalms 145.4, Genesis 17.9, And God said to Abram, or Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. To put a, a point on that, 1 Chronicles 16.14-15, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember His covenant forever for the word that He commanded for a thousand generations. Deuteronomy 4.9, only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. You have an obligation. Just because your you know, little birds are out of the nest doesn't mean that, that your hand's off and let's just retire and everything's kicked back up and uh, you've got nothing left to do. Proverbs 13.22 says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. But the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Um, a, a good man does that. So in order to be a good man, you'd have to know and conform to the word. Uh, in order to have wealth, you'd have to have first wisdom because humility and fear of the Lord is the beginning of wealth and honor in life. And so uh, this man's inheritance that he's passing on to his children's children is not just money. It's, I think it does mean that. But it means wisdom, righteousness. Uh, you know, household habits ingrained into your children and into their children uh, in such a way that, that faithfulness passes on. There's a, I think I've mentioned it in some class, a secular author I like um, called Atomic Habits, uh, uh, James Clear. And he says, if you care about the goal, focus on the system. Um, and so part of our job as we you know, grow older and move on to the generations and, and want to see this pass, pass down to future generations is to is to bring them up in the, in the paideia of the Lord, enculturate your kids in such a way that they'll enculturate their kids and that they'll enculturate their kids. Work into them habits that are going to live on down and encourage those and continue to do so all the days of your life. Uh, Proverbs seventeen six: Children's children are a crown of the aged and parents are the pride of their children. What a blessing to be able to have grandchildren. And you know, it's often said that's the, you know, the, the judge of a man's character it's his children, but it's his children's children. <laughs> What's the status of their grandchildren? Um, how well did his training of his child pass down? <clears throat> Some summary thoughts. You're never too old to be faithful. Uh, just because your kids are grown doesn't mean that you've missed your opportunity to impact generations that follow. And at the very least, which as God would have it is the very most, you should pray for your family constantly. Intercede on their behalf. Plead with the Lord and never, ever, ever stop. All right, a few, eight minutes here, a few um, of the responsibilities of our callings in the family. Number one, welfare. First Timothy 5, 8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Proverbs 31, we've already read about the type of welfare providing, um, is provided through mother. And in Psalm 37, 25, I have been young and now I'm old, and yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his children begging for bread. We're supposed to care for our family. God cares for us. He's our Father in heaven. You know, you who are, what was the, um, the gospel say, Jesus said, you who are um, terrible dads, you know, if your kid asks for a, a fish, you don't give him a snake. If he asks for an egg, you don't give him a rock. Um, how much more so will our Heavenly Father give us all good things when we ask him? Um, we are to um, provide for our, our people. Um, but the world around us doesn't think that. The world around us would have us uh, rely not so much on our fathers as on maybe the state. Um, socialism is growing in our world today. It's both the cause and effect of what's known as uh, post-familialism. You know, there's, 
Um, the strength of the family in our world today is crumbling in so many ways. If you look at the stats, you can figure out. But it's, it's being undermined. Um, all of this that we're learning about what God calls you know, the roles and responsibilities of the family to be are, in many cases, maybe in all cases, in either direct or some type of conflict with what the, the world would teach. Um, it is, a, it's, it's an effect in the sense that if you have no one to fall back on, like in the family, then you need a big government to take care of you. But it's also a cause because as government is growing to fill in that gap, you know, um, people, uh, people proactively move away from planning for families. It's, it's like a moral hazard. You know, down on the coast of, uh, the Gulf Coast of Texas, people build these big old houses and then a hurricane comes. Then they rebuild the house and they do it year after year after year. Why? Because FEMA is going to come in and they're going to take care of it. So insurance, you know, the safety net gives sort of a moral hazard. Well, if, um, if there's this safety net out there given from the government, I don't have to rely on my family. I can rely on someone else. And so I can, if I don't like what my dad's telling me to do, forget you. I'll just go be my own. Rather than submitting and, and following the model that God has given us, we look to uh, the state. Uh, everything that we have comes from the Lord. We're to care for those who God has entrusted to us. It's an overwhelming and even impossible task in our own strength. But our strength and provision come from the Lord. He's faithful, so we need to trust in him. All right, here's um, education. 1 Corinthians 7.14 says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. This is where we learn that even the, ch- the child of even one believing parent is consecrated and holy, set apart for the Lord. Okay, so, so God intends for Christian children to be different, to be set apart, to be holy, to be his. Um, Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 2. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, and you and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and commandments which I command you all the days of your life. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or heart, soul, and strength. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And the first responsibility given to the fathers is you shall teach them diligently to your children. Um, Solomon teaches us in Proverbs 9.10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And so we want our children to be educated. We want them to learn. We want them to have knowledge. We want them to have wisdom, to have um, efficacy in the world, to be able to, um, to succeed and to, and, to, and, and to do well. Scripture says that it's the fear of the Lord that is the very beginning it's not just the first step, it's the foundation that undergirds it. You can't have wisdom outside of or apart from the fear of the Lord. Colossians, uh, Paul writes in Colossians 2.3 that it's in Christ that are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. To deny him necessarily makes you a fool. <clears throat> Luke 6.40 says, A student is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So it's not whether, but it's which. Who are we learning from? And not just the people, but the content and the curriculum. What is it that we're teaching our kids? Are we, are we teaching them or are we exposing them to things that are in direct conflict to what Scripture teaches? Are we teaching them to ignore the God who created and sustains them by virtue of who they're around, the context they're around, what they're being taught. Fathers, Ephesians 6, 4, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So some summary thoughts. We won't get to the, to the rest here, I don't think. Christian parents are responsible for ensuring that their children receive an explicitly Christian education. One founded upon the fear of the Lord, as it is the beginning, the very first step towards uh, and the foundation of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. This may take on different forms in each family as circumstances and resources and schedules are different and as every child is unique. 
with different needs for training. So there's not one monolithic path, but there is a standard. In no case and in no arrangement is instruction to occur that denies the truth of God, period. So remember the framework. By what standard? Scripture alone. To what end? To make disciples of Christ. We're supposed to seek first his kingdom. At what cost? Christ calls us to give up everything to follow him. Comfort, money, whatever. Time. Through what means? Those which God prescribes and provides. And from what motive? From a love for God and a love for your children. Um, the last two things, since there's some notes on your handout, I'll, just, I'll, fill, I'll fill these in for you before we go. Um, on economy, the household economy. So the household economy is pound for pound the greatest unit of production in the world. The household economy is pound for pound the greatest unit of production in the world. It's not individuals. Family's output is greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, Genesis 2.18, then the Lord said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'm going to make a helper for him. Ecclesiastes 4.9 says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Going at it alone is not as productive. It's not as powerful. It's not as um, efficacious as uh, in the context of a family. It's not businesses. It's not that they can't be productive. They are, but it's just not as um, efficiently productive, pound for pound, because there's no covenant love. There's no devotion. There's no inheritance. There's no... um, Sacrifice for others. John eight thirty five says, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Galatians 4, 7, So you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. You have skin in the game when you're part of a family. Not so, if I die tomorrow, folks around my company will be sad for a minute, and they'll already have the job, you know, job opening up within a couple of days because they've got to keep things going. If I die tomorrow... My family will not recover for a long time. Not governments. They produce nothing. They only redistribute. Um, We don't have time to read it, but you can read Samuel's warning against kings in 1 Samuel 8. Um, The kingdoms of this world do not want strong families in the service of the Lord. This is just a neat little thing. Uh, Not really neat, but in in Revelation 13, uh, 16 through 17, talking about the second beast, whether you think that's Nero or Rome or whatever, at least you can understand that it is called the beast and it's one of um, this world's controlling powers and it wants a type of submission of everything thought and done uh, from people that God demands for only him. It says, uh, also it causes both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand and on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has a mark, that is the name of the beast and the number of his name. That sounds a lot like Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 8, where it says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall bind them where? As a sign on your hand, and then they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Because the Jews did it literally. But what he means is, in everything that you do with your hands and everything that you think with your mind, you need to submit that through, you need to process through these words. And the beast in Revelation says, I want you to do that for me. And if you don't, that no one can buy or sell unless he has that mark. Punishment for failing to obey the culture impacts the family economy. It sounds a lot like the cancel culture that we live in today. Lastly, point C here, and then we'll close in prayer, is the culture is against God and against his family design, just as his word said it would be. Read you a couple of points, and then we'll go. All right. Uh, It seeks to destroy Christ's kingdom by undermining the order that he commands. Genesis 3 called it. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And both men and women abandon that calling. So uh, for another day, we'll talk about uh, what's been occurring in the last 50, 60, 70 years here in the States and other where. But let me pray for us as we go. Father, um, you, are, you are a holy, holy, holy God. You're righteous in all your ways. And in Christ, your law is not burdensome, but it's given in love. You saved your people from the enslavement of the Egyptians. They did nothing to earn it. You brought them out of slavery and into life, into your care. And only after your salvation did you give to them the law, that they might learn 
uh, more how to love and serve and worship you and that they might learn how to be a people, healthy and pleasing and to grow. Um, you've called us to glorify you and enjoy you forever. It's our chief end. And you've given us um, guidance on how to do that. And we have to walk by faith and not by sight because in our, in our own fallen state and in the world around us, we have all these other plans but we need to submit ourselves to your plans, and we can't do that outside of the power of your Holy Spirit, the love that you have for us. Help us to obey you because of the love that you've had for us. Help us to find grace for all of our failings, forgiveness for all of our failings, and the power to repent of the wrong paths we've walked down, whether all our lives or just recently or anywhere in between. Help us to... Uh, let go of the ways of the world and the ways of our own hearts and cling to you uh, and to not give up. You're worth it, Lord Jesus. We love you and we thank you for the grace that you have for us, for the promises that you have for us, for the, the love that you show for us, and for the way that you sustain us in all that we do, that you walk with us in all of our callings. You don't leave us or forsake us. Help us to trust in you more and more each day. And We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.